What's up, guys? Happy holidays. I hope that this holiday season you've got to spend more time with your family, with your friends, and your loved ones. This episode is going to be a little bit different than, than the others. I don't have a guest. What I wanted to do was recap some episodes from this last year that I think will help you take home the message that there is no growth without adversity. I've compiled a few clips from past podcast guests. Each one of these clips, you'll hear their stories. What I really wanted to paint was the picture of like whether you're starting your career or in the middle of your career or near the end of your career, everyone has challenges and problems and adversity that they have to overcome. And so I want to get into these clips, and this is what I want to share with you guys. Instead of coming out with an episode where I'm interviewing somebody, I wanted to share this content with you guys because I think it's it's important to highlight the challenges. There are things that everyone's dealing with. Again, no matter where you are in your journey in life, you're going to face adversity. You're going to face challenges. You're going to face problems. And my hope for you guys is that you are able to come out the other side a better person. You're able to come out the other side better. You're able to come out the other side growing from these experiences. Listen to individuals, hear their stories, and get a good reminder that nothing in life is really linear and perfect, and uh, everyone has hardships. This first clip is episode 27 with Mitch Ramirez, and he's going to take you through his experience of going to prison for almost four years. Most of you guys listening to this have not had jail time or prison time. He also overcame a heroin addiction where he overdosed multiple times. Let's check out this clip with Mitch Ramirez. The story is a story of like, I didn't just grow and become myself. Yeah. I took steps, you know, these were different steps in my progression as a, as a human being, you know, and these, the first like, step that I carved out of that mountain was just empathizing and, mm -hmm. and looking at myself from a from an outside perspective of what I've been doing and mm -hmm. what I've been doing to myself. And then it was, you know, getting the courage to do something about it, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's just so on and so forth, these things. And, you know, these ledges, some of these ledges that I got on weren't fun ledges. They were terrible points in my life, but it was one step above where I was. And I, did, and I refused to go back down. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, so rehab kick the drugs. Everything's going good. I get out. I'm so stoked to you know, live a life where I'm not doing drugs and I'm not doing all this crazy stuff to myself, but I haven't dealt with my trauma yet. Mm -hmm. I've just, I'm just, I just don't want to do drugs, but I haven't addressed why I'm doing drugs. Mm -hmm. Right. And within seven months, I think it was within, you know, honestly, probably three months, you know, I'd started to train again. I was, you know, I was like, I'm fighting. This is something I want to do now. You know, I want to at least give this a shot. I don't know where it's going to go and, but I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do this. It was like, you know, I could, probably get this charge lessened over the next few years. I could maybe still do some of the stuff I want to do. You're how old at this point? I'm 20. Can we get a brief background on your, your skill set in MMA? Were you, did you do wrestling as a kid? Did mm -hmm. you do boxing? What did you do? Yeah. So I, I grew up wrestling, you know, mm -hmm. when I was like real little, I probably got made to wrestle two or three seasons as a little kid, just because the parents tell you what to do, right. what to do. And then went back to when I was, I want to say like in sixth and seventh grade, I wrestled again, but then it was kind of like, Oh, I, I played baseball. I played other sports and, and wrestling for me. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't like the thing that I like thought about all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, once I found MMA fighting is like, okay, fighting's cool. And then I, and then I wanted to wrestle when I found MMA at 14, I wanted to wrestle again because it would make me a better fighter. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's when I started boxing a little bit. That's when I started going to like Muay Thai classes and jujitsu classes at 14. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then wrestled again in high school for, for pretty good high school for Pleasant Grove, right. Wrestled a couple seasons for them. Um, and just kind of honed and just was like, even it's funny. Cause even throughout the crazy stuff I was doing, 
I was still like building some skills somehow. I was still making my way to these practices. I was still mm-hmm. getting into these places. I was still watching these fights. I was still was almost like peripherally growing mm-hmm. into who I was going to be like unconsciously just because it was fun. Mm-hmm. But I didn't see where I was going to go with it. It was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I'm, this gives me confidence, makes me feel good about myself and I'm good at it. So I'm going to keep doing it. Right. Right. So those two things were kind of like dually meeting. And when I, when I got out of rehab and I, when I was in rehab, I met, you know, uh, some cool people. I'd, I'd already known Court McGee before this, right. Mm-hmm. From the gym and heard his story, but in rehab, he came and told a story and really inspired me to be like, oh, well, if he could do it, I could do it. You know, right. we became close friends and we're still friends to this day. I really wanted to give this a shot and I was training and I was doing these things. I was going to practices, but I'd gotten in trouble for that felony and I was on house arrest. And, you know, long story short, I screwed up. Uh, my, my PO got mad at me and took away my privileges to go train. And now mm-hmm. I couldn't train anymore. So that was the only positive thing I had in my life. Their punishment was to not let me go to the fight gym anymore. So now I'm just at home thinking about myself oh, all the time. Shit. And I had like, a month left, two months left on this house arrest. And in those two months, I just deteriorated mentally. I wasn't around the people I needed to be around. Mm. I was on my, you know what I mean? It just, and the first day I got off, I went to a party. Like mm-hmm. I'd just been waiting to go to a party and I went around some old friends and did a lot of drinking and relapsed on some pills and I was drunk, you know, and I, I woke up and was like, man, I really screwed up. And this is where shit really hit the fan. This is like November 11th of 2012. Uh-huh. I, I went out with some old friends and long story short, without getting into too many details, uh, we decided we were going to rob a local drug dealer, right? So we did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was pretty intoxicated when I did it. I'd taken a lot of pills and some stuff like that. And to be honest with you, I, I remember a lot of it, but I probably don't remember all of it. I don't remember all of it. I remember like some key points, to be mm-hmm. honest with you, and kind of woke up in jail, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of came to, like I remember like spurts of what was going on. Uh, but then I just basically woke up in jail and had oh, shit. the craziest felony charges on me, dude. Like, home invasion, robbery, gang enhancement, you know, entering a dwelling. Like, I mean, dude, it was like life sentence caps on a lot of these charges. I I think I had, I think I had three or four charges that were five years to life, uh, minimum mandatory in the state penitentiary. Right. Like that, that was over my head all with Mm -hmm. like a gang enhancement because we did it with, there was three people involved. And in Utah, Mm -hmm. they have all these crazy laws that allow them just to like bury you if you, you know, you do something crazy. So, Mm -hmm. um, and then long story short, my two co-defendants that honestly, dude, I was like, I'd actually been doing good. These two guys were kind of still up to no good. And, mm-hmm. you know, you can't blame anybody for your actions or anything, but uh, I definitely uh, wasn't my yeah. idea. Let's put it that way. Uh, and once, when it all came down to it, though, they both turned state's evidence and one, one got out in three months and one got out in six months and I got buried and they sent me to prison for 40 months. Right. At 20 years old. So say that, that last, what, what did they do that got them out earlier? Uh, turned you- state's evidence. So they snitched. Oh yeah. shit. Yeah, okay. they snitched on me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They wrote statements and took the stand and talked about how these it was all my fault, basically, and oh. went home to see their families and I went to prison. Hey, everyone's real until it until they get the books thrown at them. Right? Oh yeah, everybody. You know, and I, I at the time, you know, I was it made me really kind of bitter, you know, like, oh man, these are good friends of mine too. I know because I was like twelve. So talk about trust issues, you know, like wow, wow, totally made me like I don't fuck with anybody anymore after right. this. And it's still honestly something to this day that I deal with. Like I don't really have a lot of close people to me. Like I have mm-hmm a very small network of people that I actually associate with on a daily basis because I've just learned like, right. I don't, I don't let anybody in the circle that I don't, or I only let you in far as far into the circle is you can be without me like risking anything. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. it's almost like I've had to like, okay, like that was so extreme. I, right. you know, I, you thought, I thought, I really mm-hmm. thought I could trust these guys to be honest with you. I really did. And I was arguing with my attorney the whole time. Dude, they'd never do that to me. They'd never, and I refused to write ah, statements. They'd man. never do that to me. And then they both took the stand and I was like, and it was too late. 
you know? So yeah. at that point it's like, well, you didn't stand up for yourself even. So right. see ya. Like I said, man, you know, things happen the way they happen. And, uh, I had to learn how to let go of that while right. I was in prison. Cause you know, shit, dude, you sit, you sit in these places for that long and you associate that with somebody else. I just, you know, I just took, you know, extreme responsibility of my actions and, mm-hmm. you know, you can blame and say this and say that, but the fact of the matter is, is I, I did rob that dude. I did do those things. Mm-hmm. So it's like, whether they snitched on me or not, whether they betrayed anything else, like I still have my shit. I shouldn't have been doing that. I need to figure myself out. That doesn't mean that I need to be their homie again or like, you know, make, make up with them or anything like that. But like, I need to, to forget about them almost or forgive them in a way mm-hmm. to allow myself to be who I am, yeah. you know? So that was a huge challenge of mine, but the next 40 months were pretty gnarly, dude. I, you know, at 20 years old, I fished into prison. I remember fishing into Utah state prison and I remember like after this, you know, after the strip search and everything else and getting chained to a pipe and I'm sitting there and I'm like, yeah, I'd already been in jail for like 10 months, mm-hmm. you know, but now you're in prison. Like right. it's just a different animal. Different, yeah. And like, I remember sitting in there and just, I looked over this guy next to me, dude. It was like, I mean this, that prison, they moved it now, luckily, but it was so decrepit, dude. I don't know how they even house people in there. Like there's in the winter, bro, let's put it this way on some of these cell blocks, the windows are all broken out. And in the winter, you got to break the ice on your toilet to take a piss. Oh, you shit. I mean, it's like, dude, decrepit, right. rusted, no, like paint falling off. Like, I mean, looking like a condemned building that you got, that you got to live in. And it's full of the craziest people you've ever heard of in Utah. Yeah, dude. <laughs> wow. Yeah, dude. It was terrible. Like, yeah. Um, and just like not a lot of care, you know, not a lot of just, I mean, at that point you're just getting, you're just getting put somewhere. So you're not around normal people. Mm-hmm. And then it's just the, it's the jungle dude. So, you know, that's like, uh, most in that moment, I remember that was another like realization of like, okay, like I remember looking at this guy next to me, who's a younger guy too, you mm-hmm. know, and we both kind of looked at it was our, we were both fish. They call it fishing in like you're a fish when you mm-hmm. first go to prison. And I remember looking at him like another, we were both fish and we both looked at each other. And just kind of like gave each other like a little like sideways smile. And I was like, we really fucked up this time, didn't we? And he's like, mm-hmm. yeah, dude. Like, yeah, we did. I was like, we did it, dude. This is not good. <laughs> like, right. Right. I have to stay here. Right. I'm not that's going what? Home. Is that three and a half years? Four so, years? Yeah. So that was like, uh, I did, you know, it was 10 months fighting that uh-huh. case. And then I went to prison for another two and a half years. Okay. Right. So, yeah. and that was bouncing me around all these different counties and different stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, during that time. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, what did you pull out of? I'm sure you had some like epiphanies, pivotal moments in during that time frame. I taught myself how to be a man in prison. Wow. Honestly, I, I, when I went to prison at 20 years old, uh, I was just a kid, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of life experience. I'd never had to like get myself, you know, I'd never, I mean, sure. I went to school and things like that, but I never had had to do anything like responsible on my own. I'd never like had like a huge goal that I chased or anything like that. And um, I like a, fighting had always been this thing that I wanted to do. It's really all I wanted to do, but I was like, like I said, didn't have the confidence and like believe in myself enough. And the, the, the silver lining to the situation was these charges will not be reduced, bro. And mm-hmm. if they are, that's going to be a real long time. Like you're looking at 10 years before you can even think about that of being perfect. Uh, so you're, you are scarlet lettered, bro. And you're not dealing with a drug charge. You're dealing with like, I got, I got stuck with robbery. You know what I mean? Like that's like you go to an employer and robbery is on your, was it armed robbery? No, they're not okay. armed. It, okay. it was just, just regular, robbery. regular yeah. robbery. Yeah. But just regular, I mean, just, <laughs> regular <laughs> you know, just regular old robbery, just regs. Know, nothing, nothing too crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but that was like, uh, but that type of charge, it was like, even when I got out, oh, we'll get to that, but that's just such a bad charge to have to like, mm-hmm. that's not one that you no. can be like, listen, it's not how it seems See, it's like, it's like, nah, yeah, bro. Right, like, exactly. I don't know about that. Yeah. You know? So that was where I realized like, 
I just looked around at the guys in there, you know, and what they were doing and what their lives looked like. You know, the guys that were twice my age that had done the same thing I'd done mm -hmm. and all these things. And, you know, there's not a lot that I'm afraid of, but becoming one of those guys was so scary to me. Listen to these guys trash their baby mamas on the phone and for 20 bucks on their books so they can buy more ramen noodles and they can, you know what I mean? It's right. like, dude, you're 50, bro. Like yeah. you got three kids across two, <laughs> two women that you treat like shit. You know, it's like, man, like, and, and you're, and all you're talking about is, you know, when this next shipment of drugs is going to come in the prison so you can get high again. Mm. You know, it's like, whoa, dude. Like, and, and, and you were me once upon a time, mm -hmm. you know? And like, they would tell me that like, oh, you think you're going to be somebody, but you're not. Like guys would actively, actively tell you that they're just mm -hmm. crabs and they want to pull you back down. So pretty early, you know, I set some goals for myself of like, you know what? I, I, I had this moment, dude, honestly, where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I, I wanted to fight. And I realized that like fighting was probably the only thing I could do that I wanted to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So it was like, almost like I pigeonholed myself into doing what I wanted to do right. somehow. Like yeah. fate just was like, Hey, guess what, dude? Like you can't really do anything else you want to do other than fighting. This is the mm -hmm. only avenue that's going to accept you now. You're not going to be a pilot. You're not going to the military. You're not doing any of that shit. It's not happening. It's off the table. But you could be a professional fighter and mm -hmm. the sky's the limit. So for me, it was like, you know, you can't kill what's already dead. You right. know, it's like I'm, I have nothing to lose. Like these other guys, like, and that's the other thing too. Like when I fight, like mm -hmm. I have no problem switching that gear, dude. Like everybody's like, oh, this mental spot and this mental spot. I'm like, bro, mm -hmm. like I live in that mental spot. Mm -hmm. I like, and everybody's like, oh, you could do something else. Not that I'd be happy doing, not that I want to do. <laughs> right. This is all I want. This is what I want to do. You right. know, all the other stuff I can't do. So I'm, I'm so invested, bro. I will die in there for it. Like mm -hmm. I do, there's no backing. There's other, for me, that's like my mentality. And mm -hmm. that's why I've had, I feel like, I believe I've had the success so far in fighting and I'll continue to have the success is because I don't go in there worried about, oh, am I going to get hurt? Or is he going to mm -hmm. check this kick? Or is he going to do that? Like, it's like, no, dude, like. I'm either killing you or I'm killing both of us, mm. but you're not getting out of here in one piece, mm. no matter how this plays out. You Let's know? So go. It's like, you so know? that makes you a really dangerous opponent. Yes. Is that why, and now I'm, you know, I'm moving a little bit forward here, but is that why it's hard for you to get fights? I think so. Yeah, probably. <laughs> bro, bro, like, like, cause I, I, there's a couple podcast episodes where like, I had this fight, he pulled out. I had this fight, he pulled out. I had this guy, you know what I mean? And it's just one thing after the other. Why? I think it's like you said, you know, some of that. And I think going back to the prison thing, uh -huh. I spent that time, like I haven't always been like this big or like this, like physical, you know, I spent- Yeah, you're bigger than, than you look on camera, Yeah, which I'm, is weird because it's usually opposite. Usually opposite. <laughs> I'm pretty big right now, yeah. though, honestly. Uh, but once I decided this is what I was going to do, it mm -hmm. became this like super scary thing that was like, it was scary enough to motivate me to like do it. Yeah. You know, it was like doing something, like just going to school and becoming an accountant or something was like, dude, I'll just- I don't know if I'll be able to keep my life together if that's what I got to go do. You know, I've got to, I mean, some people can do that, but I'm just not built like that, dude. Like I never have been. But you know, for me, it was, I, I once I decided that this was what I was going to do, I went full force, dude. It, while I was in prison, I was writing out training blocks. I was, you know, for my birthday one year, I think I had my mom send me a textbook on anatomy. Like I realized I was like, okay, hey, I can be like a private contractor, personal trainer that to, to pay my bills because nobody's going to hire me. And then I can just train and, and then I'll just become a fighter. I was like, okay, I, 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 re I literally had this conversation with myself. I was like, you can go to school for four years and get a bachelor's degree, or you can literally live on the mat for four years and then you get a bachelor's degree. Mm -hmm. And then you can do two more for your master's and then two more for your doctorate. And like, that's the way I looked at it. It's like, when I uh, put these hours mm -hmm. into this profession, I will have this level of competence that will allow me to earn a living doing this. Mm -hmm. And I literally made that agreement with myself when I was in a prison cell. And I remember being like, Knowing that I knew not what I was getting, like I, I'd mm -hmm. seen guys do this and I knew how hard it was. And I think that's why I didn't have the confidence early on, mm -hmm. but I knew what I was getting myself into was going to be super gnarly, way gnarlier than I even 
could understand, like, like if that makes sense, because you just don't know until you actually do it. And but I made myself a promise. I remember I'll remember the day like I remember when I really decided to do this when I was in prison, like, no, dude, I'm going to be a professional fighter, not just a professional fighter, but I'm going to fight at the highest level that the world can offer. And I'm going to be I'm going to be a household name by the end of this. And mm. I won't stop until I do. Well, I'm going to I'm, I'm there's no other option for me. I'm just going to become the best I can be. And every day was training. I was known in there, dude. Nobody would work out with me because I'd just bury you. Like I, I never kept a workout partner the whole time I was in prison. Mm -hmm. Like I was always, always, always doing something. I'd make mitts out of toilet paper and socks and have my buddy hold mitts for me in the cell. You know what I mean? We were, I was just doing, I mean, we were always trying. I remember I made like a double end bag out of toilet <laughs> paper and a sock and like braided sheets that I'd hang under the stairs That's and the guards weren't around and I'd try to work on my shit. And like, I was just always trying to do something to make myself better in there. And I was reading and I was staying out of shit. I wasn't gambling. I wasn't doing drugs. I wasn't doing any of that. I was locked in and this is what I was going to do is my destiny. And I managed to, to maintain that level of, you know, uh, attention and, and dedication throughout that whole stay. And when I got out, you know, it was like ground run and found fight gym. Uh, I think I had, I managed to get a job for the last like year I was in there. And I think I saved up, they were paying me like $5 a day, dude, to bust my ass. And I think I saved up like 400 bucks. And that 400 bucks is when I bought my first like rash guard. Mm -hmm. I, bought, I bought a rash guard. I bought fight shorts. I bought, I bought a gym bag. And I think I bought a pair of shin pads. And my brother gifted me a pair of boxing gloves when I came home. This next clip is episode 29 with Winnie the Drew. And Winnie the Drew is one of the most followed tattoo artists. He was also facing prison time. And he he realized very quickly that his actions and his decisions would dictate the, the rest of his life. After he overcame some of these challenges, and you'll hear how, he also decided that he wanted a career path that most people wouldn't consider at the time. I don't know if the stigma's changing now, but they wouldn't consider tattoo artistry a career. And so he faced the challenge that it is that where nobody, not your family, not your friends, not your parents, believes in your dream. And he was able to show everybody and prove everybody wrong and follow his dream. So let's get into this next clip. Were there any moments that were kind of your you know, come to Jesus moment? Definitely, man. Sure. <laughs> yeah. There's been a couple of those, man. <laughs> there was a time when I was very sad, you know, like I, I did let the, the weight of, of my trials really weigh down on me. So I became a dad really young. I was 18 when I had my son. And that really was a big turning point for me because life had a lot more purpose at that point. Um, but I still didn't really fully get it. You know, and I, I had two kids 10 months apart from each other, greatest blessings in my life. And I was really young, you know, I had them really young and I was still a dipshit, you know. <laughs> I love that. Hey, call it what it is, right? Hey, it is what it is, man. I'm very real about that. I'm very self-aware of that. Man, I was up at every turn, you mm -hmm. know? And I was not in a place where I, I, I felt a sense of purpose, but I didn't really recognize that. And I wasn't really following that. You know, I had, I had some idea of purpose, but I didn't have a definitiveness in my purpose. And there was a time where I hit rock bottom, bro. It was, it was intense. So I, it was on my 21st birthday when this happened. I had thrown a big party at my friend's apartment and I had had my fanny pack on, my wallet inside of it and $1,200. It's all I had to my name. And I woke up and my money was gone. Someone had taken my money out of my wallet and I was, I freaked out. 
I was like, where's my money? I turned this whole apartment up. And there was two kids that were not at the party the night before, um, or who, who were at the party the night before, who weren't there anymore. And so I called them. I figured one of them had to have had my money. I was like, you guys better get back here. I'm going to come burn your house down. That's all the money I got. And this was on my 21st birthday. And w one of them comes back and he brings a gun. And dude, I grew up in Kaysville, Utah. Like I, I did not grow up around that kind of like heat or violence, you know what I mean? And so like I saw his gun and I instinctually freaked out. I took his gun and I was like, that situation got so real. And I was like, okay, everyone sit down. No one's moving until I get my money. And I put myself in a position. Wait, so what happened? So he, he comes with a gun. Comes with a gun. Shows it. And then you I grab it, it, you snatch it? Or? Yeah, I'm like, pull it from his waistband. Uh -huh. And shit got so real. That was the first time I had ever held a gun. And I was freaking out. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what do I do? And I was like, shit, I've seen some gangster movies. So I was like, <laughs> everyone sit down. Ain't no one leaving this motherfucker till I get my money. <laughs> Dude, and inside, I'm freaking out. I'm sweating. I'm just like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. And dude, I like I went I went to the bathroom and like emptied the clip because I was like, oh my god, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw up. Like it was like so much adrenaline made me sick. One of them had had texted someone to call the cops. So I'm sitting in this living room and everyone is sitting on the couch. I'm standing up and I'm like interrogating my 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 friends at the time. And I'm like, I need this fucking money. Another one of you guys took my money. This is not cool. It's my birthday. I can't believe you guys would do this to me. And the blind, there, the, there's a window behind them. And the blinds are open. And I see a laser cross my vision. And I look at the window. And there's a cop on top of a car with an M4, like, pointed right at me. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Is right. That's what I thought. I was like, oh, my God. So I drop down to the ground. SWAT team kicks the door in beats the shit out of me, pulls me out, and takes me to jail. And I'm just like, what the Welcome to 21. just happened? Yeah, Jeez. happy 21st birthday. Damn. And I, I was like, oh, my God, I need to get out. It's my birthday. I got dinner tonight. And I tell that to, the, to one of the officers that's booking me. I'm like, when am I going to get out and get my money? Like, this is, this is wrong. I was the one that was robbed. They, have my, they took my money. I have birthday dinner tonight with my family. I need to get out of here. And he looks at me. He's like, you're not going anywhere for 25 to life. And I'm like, what? What did you just say? He's like, you're, you're facing seven first degree felonies. You're not going anywhere. And I was like, what? How did I end up in this position? You know, and so I call my mom. And I'm like, mom, this is what just happened. And I tell her the whole story. She's freaking out at me. And all of a sudden she drops the phone and I hear my daughter scream. And she was one at the time. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And I just hear my baby like crying in the background. And she's, my mom's freaking out. Everyone's freaking out. And she's like, she, my mom picks up the phone. She's like, Oakley just fell on top of the dog's cage and it went through her cheek. And your dumb ass isn't here to do anything about it and hangs up. And I was just like, what the fuck? And that was like, I that was fucking rock bottom for me. I was like, I realized that no one else had put me there besides myself. It wasn't, you know, I tried to blame it on my friends who had robbed me, taken my money. I tried to blame it on like the dog's kennel. Like I tried to place blame outside of myself in every way. 
and I was sat down in the realest way and and faced with the fact that like it was my life decisions that had put me in that position to be there at that moment. And that was a huge turning point for me. And in that I realized like I am in control of my choices. I am in control of what I do, my actions. And that is what dictates how my life turns out, you know, and, and that changed a lot in my life. And I'm so grateful that I went through that. I'm so grateful that I went to jail in that moment and that I had to go through that trial because that was one of the hardest, most challenging. That was at that point was the hardest thing that I ever had to do. So I'm going to ask what all the viewers are going to ask right now, which is what happened? What ended up happening? So, um, I fought the case, Mm -hmm. um, and I got charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, you know? Um, cause I, I pissed off the kid when I took his gun. <laughs> you defended yourself. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't defend yourself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I got charged with telecommunications harassment for when I called them and told them if they didn't bring my money back, I was going to burn their house down. Mm. And all the other charges were dropped. I paid a lot for a lawyer to, to help me out in that situation. And I was sentenced to 300 days, um, in jail. And so I had fought the case for a year and then I spent another 300 days in jail for my sentencing. And it was crazy in, in that moment, like when I thought that I was never going to be with my kids again, I was like, how am I ever going to replace my presence in my children's life if I can't be there? Cause like my biological dad didn't get to be a part of my life for the first 15 years because he was in prison. I was like, I cannot believe that like, I'm going to have to do something like, I, I did that to my kids. How can I ever replace my life, you know, my presence in their life? So I wrote down every good thing that I ever knew, that I had ever learned. And I love writing. I'm very well-spoken. And I was like, I can write a book for them. So I wrote, I hand wrote a book for my kids. It's like a playbook of like all of the good attributes that I would want them to have. And I illustrated the whole thing for them. And that's what I did with my 300 days in there. And I um. And I'm also very grateful that I went to jail because I, I was sat down in timeout. It, it forced me to, you know, be faced with that type of discipline. It taught me discipline and it taught me a lot of good habits. That is where I started waking up early every day, started making my bed every day, started writing in a gratitude journal every day, started reading and writing every day. I read 142 books in there. I wrote wow. every day. I made my bed every day. I I was like very disciplined and I came out a more refined person and mm-hmm. I came out with a lot of recognition, you know, that I'm in control of my life. Even if I'm placed in a situation that was, you know, what I thought was out of my control, it was my choices that put me there and what am I going to do about it now? You know, and I've carried those habits and that, you know, that mental fortitude forward, you know, and I, I made a lot of goals in there. I made a lot of plans in there that have come into fruition. That's where I decided I wanted to get out, become the greatest tattoo artist ever. I wanted to open my own shop. I named my shop in there. And, you know, years later, I finally opened it. And like, I started to manifest all of these, um, these things that I, I once thought were dreams, you know, and I'm glad it happened, man. It was, it was intense, but that was a huge turning point in my life that made me realize like 
I can be what I want to be. I can be who I want to be, and I'm in control of that. Thanks for sharing that, man. Yeah, man. It's crazy how rock bottom can really build people. Like, I was imagining Goku in the hyperbolic chamber or whatever that thing's called, where mm-hmm. he just fucking 100 times gravity of Earth and just training to become that. That's that's what it sounded like the 300 days, the 10 months in, mm-hmm. in prison was for you. Or was it jail? Jail. Jail. Yeah. You transition out of it. You know, it sounds like you got a whole new lease on life. Like, the, the causation of your actions were, were probably visceral at that point. It's like, oh, shit. Every action has a consequence. I get mm-hmm. that now. Now you're you're envisioning the type of person you want to become, mm-hmm. right? Would you say it happened overnight, like in that year in jail, or was it still kind of uh, for you uh, a journey before you became this, you know, the person you are today? Was it? What, did you still have to have a few, you know, trials and and, and learning lessons throughout that time? You know what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like not nine day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It taught me a lot, and it made me grow up in a lot of ways you know there was still a lot of of work to be done you know and there was still a lot of situations that put me in the place to you know to have to experience um serious moments of growth and you know hard realizations like that um but it definitely set me on my path you know i got out um and it was it was a challenge to assimilate back into life but i had a, a lot more tools in my in my utility belt to to use in that and so i came out had no money to my name had to figure out how to how to build off of that um, but there was still a shit there was still a lot of of hard lessons um to come but that definitely like set me on my path to in, especially in tattooing you know because i knew without a doubt, like that is what I wanted to do, you know, and I had, I had known that I had made that choice already, but it, that choice became very real after that, you know, cause there was a time after that, that I was like working towards, um, wanting to tattoo, really becoming the artist that I am now and the person that I am now, but I had made the choice before then, you know, before all of that happened, I, I was going to school full time. I was playing rugby up at the U of U. And so I was like going to pretending to go to school, but really just I was up there to play ball. Yeah. You know, and I was working two full time jobs, but I knew that I wanted to tattoo and I knew that I had to dive into that and dedicate myself to that. And so I had quit both of my jobs and dropped out of school on the same day. I remember the day that I told my parents that <laughs> they were like, what the hell are you thinking? Like, what have you done? And I I remember like it was yesterday, man. I had just told my mom and she's like, wait till your dad gets home. (laughs) So he gets home. He had just gone. And I remember where he went because the conversations we had, but he had just gotten home from getting my mom food at Arby's. He pulls up. I tell him, I'm like, dad, quit both of my jobs and I dropped out of school today. I'm going to tattoo. He's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. I was just down at Arby's and they had a sign in the window that said that they're hiring you're going to go down there and get a real job. And I was like so hurt that he didn't see tattooing as a real job. Like I I had the vision for what I wanted to do, you know, and, and you know, to, to his credit, he was just trying to be good at, he was trying to look out for me, you know, and he just didn't understand what I was wanting to do. 
And last but not least, this is episode 25, part one, which is episode 25 with Paul Hutchinson. And Paul Hutchinson is a business titan. He had built a multi-billion dollar business. He was the founder of that business. And then he went on to found a nonprofit and go on 70 undercover missions to rescue children from child trafficking and from sexual exploitation. This one is really interesting because from our vantage point, we see a guy who has it all. The mansions, the supercars, the relationships, the connections, the bank account, the financials. In that stage of life, you're also going to realize he had adversity and challenges and problems that aren't readily apparent. And he's going to take you through his own emotional growth. And so let's get into this next clip. How do you get into the right mindset for those situations? What is your psychology like? When I'm going before? into mm-hmm. undercover work, mm-hmm. it goes back to what we spoke about before. Mm-hmm. We're in fear and faith cannot exist in the same person at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? When you have unwavering conviction about something, unwavering, you know, John chapter five talks about having faith unwavering. That's the the key word there is unwavering. Mm -hmm. And faith, a lot of people think that faith is a religious term. Faith is a universal law. It's the most powerful law in the universe. Mm -hmm. And it's simply this, it's the unwavering conviction that what I want to have happen will happen. People have a hard time with unwavering conviction about anything. Mm-hmm. Should I marry this woman? Should I start this new job? Should I move to this new city? Whatever. And it's because they don't know if it's in line with what their God wants, mm-hmm. right? In these situations, when we're doing undercover work, it is easy for me to have that unwavering conviction because I don't care if you believe that God is a, a man or a woman or a mountain or a cloud or a universe or a whatever. It doesn't matter. There's no higher power in the universe that's okay with an eight-year-old being raped, Mm -hmm. period, right? Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to have unwavering conviction that the powers of God and the powers of the universe will come into play and will lead me to them and will keep me safe every Mm -hmm. time. And so by having that unwavering conviction, I can move forward. I I, I had a a talk with some... some, uh, uh, Navy SEALs that were on the first time they were doing under, undercover with me. And they said, Paul, I want to see what you do. How do you do this? And I, I told him this story. I told him about the unwavering conviction. And they're like, okay. I said, and and I said, you, you've seen the movie Finding Dory? You know, Finding Nemo, the second one, Finding Dory, this stupid mm-hmm. fish with a two-second memory, right? <laughs> and her face, her, her, her parents are somewhere in the ocean complex and she just keeps on swimming and per- pretty soon she finds them. I said, guys, mm-hmm. I might operate like Dory tonight. <laughs> They're like, what? I said, because I'm not going to follow logic and protocol. Right, right. I'm listening. As mm-hmm. I put my hand on my heart, I'm listening here. And uh, I said, I said, every single one of these rescue missions, that's what, that, that's what it's about. It's about listening. In fact, um, just one last year, uh, recently, uh, we, were, we, were, uh, we were in Ecuador. Mm-hmm. And the federal agents asked us to come and follow up with some leads, and um, and they there was a a little girl that we had uh, already worked with that was in the hospital. She had gotten beat up by some of the traffickers. She was taken 
and she was told that she needed to earn $1,000 a day, otherwise she'd get beat up. This was the third time that she'd gotten beat up, and this was so bad she was in the hospital. So we're able to extract enough information to find out this, this area that she was in. And so the, the, the federal agents take me and, and a couple of my guys, and they drop us off into this area downtown. They said, this is, this is the area that she said that she was in, is this area downtown that she was being trafficked. We said, okay. They said, just, just see what you can find down here. So we, we, we get out, and there's this courtyard. And I'm, I'm, I'm standing there in the middle of the courtyard and there's drug dealer, drug dealer, prostitute, prostitute, just kind of, you know, it's a seedy area of town. And I'm just listening with my heart, just listening. And I'm looking around, nothing feels right, nothing feels right. And then I, I look down this alley and there was this, this girl that was kind of leaning back against a wall with her foot up against the wall. And immediately I felt it. That's mm-hmm. it right there. So I grabbed one of my guys. I said, come here, let's come, come with me real quick. And we go up there and this is the kind of thing that happens every time, right? Mm-hmm. We go up there and I, and I say, como se llama? And she answers that F E F E, you know, that's your name, oh, okay. right? I'm like, um, and and she uh, she says DS dollars, ten dollars. Wow, it's horrible, how seedy, you know. And and I, I pull out a twenty dollar bill, and she goes, Oh, dos F E F E. And I oh says, No, gosh. I said, I said, uh, I said in my broken Spanish, I said, mm-hmm. I, I've got I've got a friend coming down looking for uh, something he can't get in the U S. You know, mm-hmm. if you have some connections with some younger. She goes, oh, no, I don't know anything about it. Okay, okay, okay. I just put the money back in my pocket. I went back down to the courtyard with the other guys. And less than two minutes later, she comes down. She's pointing at me. She's, come here, come here, come here. I go over and she goes, follow me. We go down this alley, this different alley around the corner. I went with one of the guys and we come up and there's these, these two big wooden doors and these guys out in front folding their arms, big dudes. And uh, old crappy sign that said hostel over the top. It wasn't a hostel. This mm-hmm. was a front for a brothel for mm-hmm. children. Wow. Right. And uh, tell them what we're looking for. And they open the door and there's some children right there, right there. I said, yep, that's what my boss wants. Yep, exactly. We geotagged the location. I exchanged contact information with them, went back to the, uh, made sure we weren't being followed, went back to the undercover van, got in, told the federal agents, showed them the place. And they said, oh, that's exactly where she said she was being sold. They didn't tell me exactly. It was an eight block area, right? Mm-hmm. And, and less than five minutes after being there, by listening, finding the right person, we were being led there. Then the next one is super powerful. They said, okay, now we're going to go. And uh, there's a place we, we got some leads on. There's this, this uh, uh, spa that does nares and hair, hair and stuff. But they had a massage place in the back that was doing selling children out of it. It was a front for, for this place selling children. So we uh, they drove around the city and got to this other place. And then that federal agent goes, oh, crap. Yeah. I said, what? He says, it's closed down. They've already, they, they must've got tipped off that we were coming. They, the whole place is closed. So the spa's not even there anymore. And I said, no, stop. Because I could feel it. I could feel it. In my, I knew there were still children there. I knew it. He says, stop. This is, Why? I said, stop. I can feel it. They're still here. And this is what happens when you're, when you're following unwavering faith and coming from a place of pure integrity, you'll be able to be more sensitive to those intuitions in every area of your life. And so, so he says, okay, he stops and I get out. And uh, one of the, the Green Berets, uh, Petter, that was there with us, he opens the door and a couple of my, my operators get out. I get out and I go to the back of the van and I'm just, I'm just listening from the heart. I'm just listening. I'm looking back and forth. I'm looking at this place that, this, that, that the kids used to be, this, this spa area. And, uh, and there was a restaurant that was on the left-hand side. And I, I, I felt I need to go in there. I went into the restaurant and I went right to the manager. And I said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to, my friends told me about a massage place here. I said, is this still here? 
And he said, you got an appointment? Freaking knew that place was mm. still there. Right. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I don't have an appointment. He goes, oh, I don't know anything about it. I'm like, mm. no, for your. Mm-hmm. So I went out front, different people walking by and I'm just listening. And nothing out of the ordinary other than there was this lady that was walking and she, she felt differently to me. She was walking her dog. I walked over to the lady and I said, hey. I said, uh, you can help me with something? And she goes, what? I said, I, um, I have an appointment for a massage here. I don't even, I don't even know, I, but it, it looks like they closed down. She goes, you have an appointment? I, I kind of lied. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and she, she makes a phone call. And a few minutes later, these big steel doors open. This madam is there. Me and my operators go in, tell her what we're looking for. She takes us up and around. We knew we were being watched. And, uh, um, but she takes us back to this back area. And then there's a center um, foyer. And there was rooms all around the foyer with massage beds and queen-size mattresses in each one of them. And then she pulls out a menu. This menu has pictures of children. And has specifics about the things that you want to get and how much each one of them would cost. Mm. And I said, yep, that's what my boss is looking for. You know, we exchanged contact information. The feds were able to shut her down, shut the other ones down, rescued a whole bunch of kids right after we left because we were able to get in and find that information. This Mm. happens on every single rescue. And as long as you're in a place of complete unconditional love, and unwavering faith, you're protected and you're led in areas that you could never imagine. After hearing all that, I feel compelled to ask, what is the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual toll that you have to pay in in this position? What's the tax that you have to pay to do this? You've got to be in a really good place from a spiritual standpoint to be able to go into the recesses of hell like that. Mm-hmm. I've seen guys go in there and they come out and it, it affects them in both ways. Either, you know, they're, they're sick to their stomach or they, you know, they just can't deal with it emotionally. Others come out of it with a really unhealthy ego boost. Hmm. Like, like, you know, I mm-hmm. freaking did that, you know, and, and, uh, and that unhealthy ego boost shows up in, in all their relationships, how they treat other people. It's mm. just, just this negativity just, just eats at them. And um, a few years, about six years ago, and this was part of my transformation to qualify for a finally a healthy relationship. Mm. I um, was one of my undercover operators came to me and he said, Paul, he said, uh, do you trust me? I said, yeah, you know, we do a lot of undercover stuff. Of course I trust you with my life. He said, um, he says, I found something that's helping me a lot in getting rid of some of that negative energy and uh, that trauma we're holding on to. And I'm like, I don't hold on to the trauma. I'm Paul Effin Hutchinson, right? You know, mm-hmm. but my trauma was being held on to in that negative way, like I was saying. You know, an unhealthy ego and you know unhealthy relationships. You know, I was I was in my my second marriage that just was you know not working where it needed to be, et cetera. There was just a lot of things in my life that were it was because of how I was showing up or not showing up in my life. It was completely my doing, and uh, so he brought me into a guided meditation transformational experience that changed everything for me. 
uh, a deep dive into, you know, an, a non-conventional, I, you know, I could, therapists weren't helping me because mm. my, my trauma was self-imposed. Mm. I wasn't Paul Hutchinson. I was Paul F. and Hutchinson, right? Built mm -hmm. a multi-billion dollar company and I rescued mm -hmm. the kids and this is, you know, I was super mm -hmm. unhealthy. And I would go into to therapy offices and I, I'd tell the therapist why I was so cool. You know, that's just how I was, right? <laughs> so, so being able to put me into a place where through a holistic uh, approach was able to put me into a deep theta state with some, mm -hmm. some sound bowls and some other, other modalities, I was able to completely transform my life in ways that, I mean, for example, I felt in one of these guided meditation transformational experiences, I, the, the facilitator took me to a place where I could feel in every single cell in my body, I could feel the pain that my children experienced when I cheated on their mom, mm. right? I could feel it. It was so dark and it was so heavy. I thought I was going to die. I couldn't even breathe. The, the, the depths of hell is where I was. I could feel myself so deep down in the earth. It was black. It was heavy. It was dark. It was so much pressure. And I... Uh, I had these these headphones on. I was listening to this what I call journey music, you know, that was taking me there, and I was going through my and and then I I I couldn't I couldn't handle it, and so I switched my playlist to what I call my Jesus list, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was some beautiful music, and mm -hmm. I could feel myself being transformed as I just ugh, all of that crap that was just chains that were holding me down was there. And then, boom, I flipped it back and I could go back down and I could feel the negativity that was being attached to me from being in those situations of, of the child trafficking type scenarios and stuff. And I was just, you know, I could feel the pain of those children. And, and I, I, it was so dark and so heavy. And then I changed it back to my music again and it pulled me out and I could, I could feel that transformation of, of, of letting go the decisions that I made of the past, letting go of the negative energy that other people had placed on me, letting go of that negativity of being in some of those situations. And it was so transformational in so many ways that I was now able to see a clear path to a healthy relationship, to, to a healthy connection with, with everybody around me, and most importantly, a healthy relationship with myself. That wasn't based on ego and pride and and fear, but it was it was based on love and true forgiveness, forgiveness for myself mm -hmm. for those stupid things that I did, forgiveness for other people for the stupid things that they did when they mm -hmm. were out of integrity, and being able to get to a place where we could all move forward into the space of healing. Thank you guys for tuning in, and really, I just want to highlight that doesn't matter what walk of life you are or where you are in your life, the continuity between all humans is that we all struggle, we all will face challenge, we all will face adversity. So going into this new year, if you guys can reframe your relationship with adversity and challenge and problems and recognize that on the other side of these challenges, on the other side of this adversity, on the other side of these problems that you're going to face inevitably, you know, it's not whether you're going to face it or not, it's going to happen, that you're going to be able to grow from these challenges. And if you allow yourself to grow, 
then you will become better. And becoming better and growing into the, the next version of, of what you need to become the person that you're you're seeking to attain. You've got to go through it, unfortunately. I wish it was, it was any other way. If you were to ask me, hey, what's the scariest thing? What's the scariest situation you could go through in 2024? My answer would be that you're in the same place mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and financially that you were in 2023. The scariest thing that could happen for you in 2024 is that you do not grow, that you do not get better, that you there's no incremental step-by-step or there's no progress in your life. That's scary. With this new year, I wish you more success, more life, more growth, and more of these th- the things in this life that are going to help you get better. The underlying thread in all of that is that you're going to experience adversity, you're going to fe- experience challenge, and you're going to experience problems, self-inflicted or inflicted externally by things that are out of your control. And so I wish that for you too, because that's going to help you grow. And without adversity, there is no growth. Without resistance, there is no growth. I hope you take this message and and you watch this content and you see these clips and it inspires you to push a little harder and maybe even helps you recognize that you are not alone in this human experience, that there's people that are struggling and dealing with things. And if I brought you any value today, rate, review the podcast, share this with anyone that you think would resonate or or enjoy the message or enjoy the content and we'll see you next time and happy 2024 happy new year and happy holidays peace